Welcome back to the Case of the Sunday Scaries. I'm Elise. And I'm Annie. And today we are joined by an incredible guest, Miss Alice. She is an advocate for domestic abuse, and we really wanted to make sure that we end this mini-series with someone that not only has experienced an abusive relationship, but recovered from it, moved on, and is now an advocate and helpful others. So, Alice, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, let's start a little bit with your story. And going back in time, how did you meet? Where did this relationship start and how did it escalate? Of course, I would like to preface that this wasn't a romantic relationship. And that's part of what makes my story unique. Context, I was removed from my mother's custody at the age of eight and placed with my father. That that would be a less abusive and neglectful situation. Unfortunately, all it did was change the circumstances that I was living in. So at the age of 13, I decided to leave home and I moved in with two of my friends who were 19 at the time and dating each other. I lived with them for about five years until they broke up and I remained friends with both. The woman in that relationship was my roommate at the time and the male in that relationship was one of my friends who, because I had grown up with him, I considered a brother. And so that's how we really met. At this point in time, I had recently started college and I was trying to get control over migraines that I was experiencing. So I leaned on him for a little bit of help. And I guess where my story, so to speak, starts is when my roommate had let me know that she had lice. So it wasn't exactly the best place to go home to. So I had let my friend know, hey, my roommate has lice. Is it okay if I crash over at your place until they're gone and safe to go back? He said, absolutely, that's not a problem. He was aware of the medication challenges that I was experiencing as well, which had made me incredibly tired. It was a struggle to wake up in the mornings, I'll sleep at work, in classes, one time at the wheel, which was kind of scary. And I leaned on him like a brother for that support to make sure I was waking up on time for classes and for work. Well, if we fast forward to New Year's, I had woken up that morning and found some physical evidence that had gone down my legs, which prompted a very specific kind of reaction where I had uh, locked myself in the bathroom for a couple of hours trying to figure out what happened, why it happened, if I had done anything. A lot of those typical reactions that people who've experienced sexual assault go through. Well, I knew that at this time, I couldn't really go home because of the lice. And I was stuck in this mindset that I had done something or given him the wrong impression because I did confront him. And he shared that he had not only romantic, but also sexual feelings for me. And that in his mind, what had happened was an expression of that love. I made it pretty clear to him in that moment, this was not love. This was assault. And that I never wanted him to touch me again. At this point, I still couldn't go home. So I had tried to stay with friends at that point. And because I had felt responsible for having him in my life and therefore their lives. Because people had started to notice some signs in me that I was behaving wildly out of character. I did end up confiding in my friends what had happened. And beautifully enough, they cried with me. They were actually the people who called the police, stayed with me through the before, and made it pretty clear that they were going to be with me through this process. That's incredible. Not everyone gets that support when they come forward. Yeah, and it's valuable, I will say. It's one of the strongest things that can get people through abusive relationships and through traumatic events. And I'm incredibly grateful for those people today. Because I think that the story would have drastically been different if they weren't there. So following that report opened an investigation where everything was out of my hands at that point. I was advised to cut all contact with this person, make it pretty clear that I don't want contact moving forward. 
separate while they investigate what evidence was there. Only he did not respect that. He continued messaging me, sending me emails, creating social media accounts to continue to talk to me when I did block him. It got to the point where he had sent me several emails with confession cards, actually, detailing what he did, why she did it, how he felt he was doing these things, like those motivations. When he was sending these emails and stuff, was he doing it under his own name? so that it would be easy to use this as evidence? Or was he creating burner accounts? I found this out later after the fact. He had been contacting me through burner accounts. So he was flying under different usernames that I wouldn't be able to attach to him, having known his common gamer tags or social media accounts. Then he just kind of let abandon go to the wind, so to speak, and started messaging me directly. Well, he ended up sending me that letter, which was about five pages, wildly upsetting. He had created a blog about me with pictures detailing where I was, how he was following me. To this day, I still remember the post where he said that he would find me. No matter where I was, what year it is, anything, he will find me. And sharing that with my friends and how scared they were for me. Like the urgency in that situation really came from a lot of those outside reminders saying, hey, this is not okay. What can we do to make you safer? And I am still so appreciative that I had good people around me at that time who were willing not only to take me into their homes, but check in on me on a daily basis, make sure that I was doing okay. Because when I did go home, he would show up day, night, afternoon, anything. If I was there, he was there. He would follow me in my car, play where I once crossed state lines, try to get away from him. Showed up at my school one day detailing this on the blog, saying that he was coming there, looking for me, looking at classrooms, trying doors. And at that point, I had actually had um, one of my close friends who was an active duty military member at the time, leave his post, came from base just to sit with me in campus police while they, and by they, I mean campus police, tried to find him. Unfortunately, they could not. That is terrifying. Throughout this entire experience, I was really frustrated with the law enforcement system because it felt like every time I called, he would be gone by the time they showed up. Or they would say, well, we appreciate you letting us know she did that. Just keep it documented. I share with you the frustration with law enforcement. I have a protective order. And I felt the same way. Like every time you called, it was like you said, thanks for letting us know. But or, well, we'll send someone out there. But, you know, we have a lot of calls coming in. This isn't an emergency. And it's like, how? How is this not an emergency? <laughs> There's someone threatening my life. And especially with you where he has online evidence that he is stalking you. How is that not taken seriously? That's so frustrating. I mean, I'm sure for you, I'm sure for your friends, and obviously these people that love you and are all screaming out like, we want to support you, we want to protect you, and you're not getting that same support from the people that are put into these jobs to do just that. That was probably the hardest part throughout the entire experience. I think my one saving grace was the victim advocate I was assigned after he had finally been arrested, following one morning where he had sent me so many messages. I think most people know that your social media is on just about every screen, every device that you have. So I remember being in my bedroom and my phone popping up with these messages, and then my laptop, and then my desktop, and then even my tablet. Like they were everywhere, filled with angry content, such as saying that his car had been repossessed, saying that it was somehow my that I didn't care about him, that I didn't care about his feelings. And this is actually where he sent me a picture holding a gun to his head, which was upsetting in so many different ways. Of course. And this is where my, my roommate had come in because she had heard me crying at this point. 
saw this and given that this was her ex at the time, she freaked out. She was like, oh my goodness, we need to call someone. Called in a wellness check on him while I'm sitting there frozen, not really sure what to do, overwhelmed. And that just led to a stronger series where he had put me down as his emergency contact. So for about a week afterwards, when he had been put on an M1, which is a psychiatric hold for about 72 hours to assess if he's stable or not, I kept getting calls from the facility saying, hey, he won't talk to us. He says that the only way to find out is if we talk to you. So who are you? And that was a significant struggle was remaining as calm as I could and say, hey, I know you guys don't know this, but this is who I am. This is what he's done. And I need you to stop contacting me. After he was released from that facility, diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, he showed up back to the house. Same day he was released, went on a flea again. That following day is when he did show up to my school. And from there, she fled to another city, documenting it all on this blog, his intentions. And it wasn't until about three days later when he finally returned to work where he was arrested. And that started, at least in my opinion, on what was being taken seriously. So I was able to provide this blog, the pictures that he had posted of me online from when I was unconscious. Every message that he sent me, I gave over all of my passwords to every account that I had. I had to do an interview with not the chief of the sheriff's department, but the lead investigator on the case. Very much where it felt like they were looking for any way to say that it was something I did or that I wasn't clear that I didn't have these feelings, anything that would make it not an act of violence. And I, again, applaud the victim advocate because she was behind me every step. She made it very clear what was happening. She talked to me about how to protect myself, increase my physical safety. And she told me that a lot of people are going to try to tell me to take this day by day. But sometimes day by day is too long. So instead, take it moment by moment. I love that. So can you talk about the victim advocate? Was she assigned to you by the police department or was it by an organization? She was assigned to me through the sheriff's department because of the jurisdiction, given that we slightly lived outside of the city at the time. Got it. It wasn't like a soft referral either. I wasn't entirely sure what was going on. It seems like there's a... There's room for improvement when it comes to communication with these agencies. But when she identified herself, she was like, hey, I just want to meet you in person. This is the kind of stuff that we're going to talk about. She made it a little bit better mm -hmm. to be dealing with so many unknowns and asked so many questions and have to go through all these processes, applications, interviews, reports, all of it. She was like the light at the end of my tunnel, honestly. She let me know about what was called the Victim Assistance Fund at the time, which helped me relocate into a safer location so that he didn't know where I physically lived. She introduced me to a program that most advocates don't know exists called the Address Confidentiality Program so that my typical location and my address wouldn't be revealed on public record because that's actually really easy for people to access whether you registered as a voter in your state or maybe it somehow ended up on Facebook because someone checked in at your house when you were hosting a party. Especially in this day of social media, like you said, and being able to check in here. And sometimes you don't even know the app is posting where you're at and it's doing it for you. So it's really nice to hear that she facilitated putting those things into place because how are people supposed to know about it on their own otherwise? Exactly. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges in the world of domestic violence, because I know when someone first told me that I was now considered a domestic violence case, I didn't think of it that way, because most people think domestic violence is just intimate partners. And it's not. It can be family members. It can be neighbors. It can be roommates. 
And in fact, even most stalking cases, 42% of the time is someone you know, rather than what we are pretty commonly aware of as a stereotype for some masked figure, probably hidden in the bushes, watching us come home. The boogeyman. Yeah, the boogeyman, right, that we see in entertainment. So he finally gets arrested. I'm underlining the word finally. You're set up with this advocate. And then what does it look like for you? That was such an overwhelming time. I was still a full-time student trying to communicate with my instructors about what was going on. I had to move, and I also couldn't tell, or at least I felt like it wasn't safe to tell my roommate or any of my friends where I was moving to. I didn't trust documenting a text or email or anything like that because he had gotten into my Facebook at one time. He was in my email. He was in my calendars. It was everywhere. So I was trying as hard as I could to be secret about where I was, remaining vigilant about if anyone was watching me. So there was a lot of overwhelming amounts of information that I had to take in, as well as showing up to these court hearings, providing evidence, providing impact statements, talking about how I felt, what she did to me physically, how it uprooted my life. All of these different factors everyone wanted under a magnifying glass, it felt like. And those hearings were not easy. To this day, I credit the one person who stood by me through them for keeping me distracted. I don't remember a lot of what was said or even what I said, but I do remember playing thumb wars and making silly faces at me and making sure that this was at least like as positive an experience as it could be. That you had moments of levity in the midst of absolute chaos. Absolutely. But while I was going to those hearings, I was still feeling the mental and physical symptoms of trauma. I had nightmares. I couldn't sleep. There was really no rest for me physically or mentally at that time. And I had to sort out the events, the timeline, what was said when, and try to pull myself together in each hearing to present all of this information and remove the emotional aspect from it. Not only the hurt that comes from the sexual assault, but the confusion, the betrayal, the utter dismay of losing someone who was extremely close to me for a long period of my life. And I had to put it essentially on one piece of paper and say it very clearly and try not to cry, which in a courtroom is really hard to do. When you went to court, was he staring at you while you're trying to give your statement? So unfortunately, I did have to be in the same room as him for most of those hearings. Again, I had that friend present with me who tried to physically block our line of sight as much as possible. So I had that as a comfort. I had an advocate who came with me to every hearing as well. But he was still not only to see any emotions that I showed, which I felt like was um, an ongoing loss of power or control for me. So for what I do remember, as far as that, it felt like a violation of the rules in a courtroom where typically a victim is not meant to be addressed directly by the offender. But he did address me directly with another letter saying that, you know, he thought this was an expression of love and that's all he was ever acting out of. And now he sees that it was wrong because he was arrested. And I know that that just reduced me to tears. Like, I ended up carried out of that courtroom because I was so upset. I just want to reach to the computer and hug you and cry for you because how the hell could they allow that? He has no right to talk to you in any form. That's how I felt. Agreed. That's how I felt and my friend as well. Um, I remember he wanted to give a statement saying, well, you know, she was impacted, but so was I. Because who do you think has been up with her every single night when she can't sleep, when she's crying? 
when she's freaking out because she thinks that someone is, is in her house. But he wanted to address the court and was not given that opportunity, which I felt would have had a more powerful impact Absolutely. seeing from the outside perspective. Getting heated. Yeah, it's not an easy thing to talk about because we recognize essentially the re-traumatizing aspects of the court process. And we try to reduce that as community providers, but for some reason still force people through those experiences. So I'm hoping that as we continue to grow as a society and increase awareness around cases like this, that these practices change. Because I remember how scared and shaky I was and embarrassed and even a little angry at myself for having those emotional reactions, even though they're completely normal because I didn't want him for one second to see how badly I was hurting. But one of the parts of this process that made it so challenging was that it's not quick. It's ongoing. It can be months in between hearings. And that's what it was for me. Usually I was waiting for contact from some advocate saying, hey, this is when the next hearing is scheduled or, hey, this is what we need from you now. This is what this side said through his lawyer. And here's what we're going to say. Do you want to add this to your statement? And I remember that they scheduled non-discriminately any date that worked for them the soonest available which often landed on days of significance, one being uh, a hearing that was on my birthday, which I remember for the rest of my life. And it leaves the person attending those hearings anxious and waiting because you don't know what you need to tell work. You don't know what she needs to tell school or when the next day this is coming. And it's incredibly frustrating. I remember that process and... I applaud you for going through it. I'll be very honest. I got things postponed so many times and I didn't feel like that people were taking it seriously enough. I remember asking the judge for a head start during one postponement because he was out on bond. And I asked for a 10-minute head start and I'm thinking, I have no one's here protecting me. What is happening here? And I ended up not following through. So I just have massive kudos to you. But thank God for you just being a badass and being able to do it because... You're right. The process of it is so slow. There's not enough being done to protect the victim during this whole court process. And it is very, very intimidating to sit there in front of the person that has hurt you in so many ways, right? I just, I don't know how you do it, but I just have to applaud you for going through it because I'm sure that that saved someone else, even when no one else was standing up for you in the way that they should have been. So it's making me angry for you <laughs> that you had to go through this and angry for everyone that has to go through this. But you should be really proud of yourself that you went through all of these steps because it is not an easy task. Alice, I have to ask, you talk a lot about your friends and how they were there for you and how they went to court with you. If someone was on the outside looking in and seeing their friend in a position like you were, how can someone kind of be an ally? What were some things that they did that just you remember and kind of look back on and have that little positive memory in this big realm of really bad memories. I think what stands out the most is they still treated me like I was a person. When you're going through the court process and investigations and hearings, feels like you're reduced to a piece of paper, a case number, and cold-hearted, repeated anatomical facts of what actions were performed against you that are against the law. And the people that were in my life made sure that I was smiling at least once a day because they would tell me stupid jokes. They would invite me over just to try to turn off my brain and take me out of all of They reminded me that there was more to my life and more to me that I wasn't just what happened to me. I was still me. They still loved me and they were still going to be there through that. 
And that is one of the most powerful things that kept me holding on to everything. They motivated me to stay in school. It motivated me to go to every hearing, making sure that I was seen and that I was heard because I had that right as not only a victim, but as a human being. This process of it makes me so angry for you that you had to go through this and and stare at this man that at one point you considered a friend who had betrayed you on so many different levels and that they are allowing him to have any voice when he tried to take away yours. And I will say that one of the hardest things, right, is having your voice taken away and it's essentially given out to someone else because they remind you constantly when you're asking questions or when you're upset and you're needing answers. They say, well, the offender still has rights. They're still a human being. They still have human rights. Okay, but what about every single right that he violated of mine? I would like more answers, more response, something that shows that human approach in these interactions. And I was consistently cut short for that. The sentence saying that we got through going through court wasn't clearly explained to me because he was sentenced for life. Going to try to get him on every single charge. He had written up um, essentially a confession letter. And I distinctly remember the judge who was on my case saying that in over, I think it was 30 or 40 years of being a judge, this was the first instance where he had seen someone so disgustingly obsessed with another human being. And that was why for the first time in his career, he was sentencing him to life. And that was overwhelming because going through that court process, I felt like a statistic. Then at the end of it, in the sentencing, I not necessarily felt like an exception, but there is significance in someone saying, this is the first time I'm giving out a lifetime sentence in your case and why. That's incredible. It's like you were finally validated. So to finally hear, I believe you and I'm putting this person away, I can only imagine the feeling. I'm getting kind of teary eyed (laughs) right now. I'm really happy you're doing this with us, Alice. So thank you. I I know it's hard, but your story is so powerful and I hate that you had to go through that. But wow. Thank you. There are a lot of people throughout my life who have spoken into me and someone who I look up to to this day told me that when you go through experiences like this and you have either had your voice taken away, you have a responsibility as a speaker to share your experiences and share what you've learned so that other people can learn from them. And That's why to this day I continue to talk about it because it's not even a case of necessarily over. So despite the sentencing hearing leaving me feeling like I had a chance at being safe again, what they don't tell you, or at least what I don't remember being told, is that lifetime sentences are given with or without possibility of parole. So about a year after I thought everything was you know, said and done, trying to settle back into regaining my sense of safety and trust in everything around me, the people around me, myself. That was a really big one. I got contacted by another advocate saying, hey, he's eligible for parole. We would like a victim impact statement. After a year? Yep, just about a year saying we would like another victim impact statement. There's court hearing coming up. It was on April 4th, which made me really feel like it was a joke. And we, we want to give you that opportunity to share your experience and share how this changed your life. And BC was confused. I was upset to be dragged back after I had barely gotten my bearings after our first round in court called it. And he was present again, where I was given the opportunity to talk to a board member of the parole board one-on-one, where they're then given the power to decide whether to move forward. The offender is reviewed by the full parole board or defer slash table them and say, 
not ready. Let's reassess a future date. Despite the overwhelming amount of evidence that I submitted, including my victim impact statement and one that one of my close friends had written, they still sent him to the full board review. I was so angry at that board member. I was like, I want to talk to you one-on-one. You get told that this is a life sentence, that you can take some power back of your life. You can maybe exhale for the first time in a very, very long time. And one year later, they're having a meeting about parole. This isn't 17 years later. This isn't 20 years later where maybe he's changed or reformed or they got him psychiatric treatment. This is one year. Who can change that much in one year that he should be up for parole? Thank you. That was one of the questions that I had hearing about this too. And I'd like to share that my experience in this is what led me to my career in domestic violence. It lit a fire inside of me that is one of the few things that keeps me getting out of bed every day. Knowing that there are people at hate who are looking for help, who are hurting the same way that I did, do, and it keeps me going. But it also just continues to contribute to my anger because I have this knowledge of signs, symptoms, human behavior. I've studied extensively. Like I'm currently in my master's of social work. There's a lot of information that you have to review, including understanding trauma and the impact that it has on you, Mm -hmm. including the law and ethics and responsibilities to survivors, prevention of re-traumatization, all of these factors that should be going into cases like this. And it seems like law enforcement is so wildly separated from everything that we know about what keeps human beings healthy and safe. What do you guys understand about human beings? Uh, That's a question I still had for parole boards because it seems like they are very knowledgeable about the law, but not about human psychology or human behavior. And a big part of overcoming this for me uh, that I think many people go through is trying to rationalize what happens and trying to gain control over your life again by preparing or gathering more knowledge and really just immersing yourself in this information so that you can't be hurt again. So that put me in a position where I felt like I have an understanding of all of these wonderful and sometimes upsetting things that make us who we are as human beings. And you guys have one very narrow scope called the law, which is open to interpretation in some cases. They say that it's very cut and dry, but it's not. Everything is taken on a case-by-case basis. And I say this with a maelstrom of emotions behind me, but I am still brought back to these hearings just about every single year. And I still learn new information. In our last hearing, he admitted that there were other victims. I don't know who they are. My heart goes out to any other person that has been victimized by him because I know the confusion and rage and sadness that they are carrying around in them. And I feel probably oceans of sadness for them, knowing that they don't have that voice. And now that's what's fueling me every time I'm going back to these hearings. That's where righteous anger comes up, knowing that they don't have a chance to say, hey, she hurt me too, because I don't know them, but I can feel them, if that makes sense. It does. So every year I have to go back and say, hey, probably not a good idea to let him out. Here are the reasons why. And I have to explain the continued way that this has continued to impact my life, including at work when I discover a new trigger or I have to reveal my trauma history saying, hey, the world is not supposed to cater to my traumatic experiences or my emotional well-being. However, 
this has happened in my past. It's made me who I am. And these things can upset me. To this day, I am still haunted by my phone getting multiple text messages or someone calling me repeatedly. So most days, I also keep my ringer off. And it's contributed to a lot of missed calls and upset connections saying, hey, I tried to call you. Yeah, you probably did. And I didn't hear it. I just cannot imagine what it is like to almost every year have to go and face someone. Let's just be honest. This is a monster who did this. He took advantage of a friendship. He took advantage of the medical situation you were in. This is an evil act that was done onto you. And then to have to go every single year is, I don't have words for that besides incredibly unfair. And I'm sorry that you have to do that. How do you go from around you, seemingly, except for your friends, saying you are a case number, you are just a victim, and losing that humanity to then fighting for other people who have gone through this experience? What was your path of your own recovery to be able to do this now? So I will say it started by looking for connections. I wanted to talk to people who knew the way that I was feeling and talk about it because after a while, it's almost not okay to talk about it anymore, or at least feel that way because the court hearings are over, meaning the event is over, but people don't see the lasting impact that it has on you. Like your spirit carries it. And what I used to tell people was that I almost wish that he had done something like cut me so that I could show them this is what he did because you can't show mental health scars. You can't show post-traumatic stress disorder unless it's on a piece of paper, which is now on several pieces of paper for me. The nightmares, unless someone's there for it, these aren't things that people see. The fear that you feel or the anxiety that you have in everyday interactions are not things that people are going to see and it can be incredibly isolating and make you feel alone. So I was looking for someone who understood what I was feeling and could share in that and walk me through it because I didn't know the first thing about feeling safe in my new apartment at the time. But I was looking for that guidance and I was lucky enough to stumble across the domestic violence organization that focused on post-trauma aftercare at the time. And they talked to me about my experiences. They made it almost normal and something to celebrate as a strength for overcoming. But they also celebrated that it changes you as a person. It doesn't make you more weak, but it does make you more aware. And it gives you insight into situations that some people will never have. You can read thousands of books. You can do all the trainings you want. But unless you live it, you're not going to understand it. And they help me connect to other people. They talk to me about advocacy and awareness and changing it for people who we know are going to go through it now. I know that there are going to be hundreds of other women and men and non-binary people, everyone, all kinds of people across the world going through experiences like I did. It probably won't be exactly the same, but it will be the same level of change. And something I learned along that was that sometimes the best way to help yourself is by helping others and changing it. Because seeing that change in front of you gives you reassurance, knowing that you had a hand in it. It gives you a semblance of control over what happened to you. And it really does empower that voice that may be lost along the way. That was so beautifully put. I'm going to get it choked up. You clearly have a heart for service. And when you have a story and you give that story away, it's in service of other people. 
so that not only that they can gain perspective and maybe some knowledge about it, but it also, like you said, you become the narrator of that story and during something like this, that is taken away from you. So I think it's incredible what you're doing. We do want to ask a couple questions that we had from our listeners. As someone who has gone through, she asked an abusive relationship and is on her own path to recovery and, and wants to re-enter the dating world. Is there anything that you can think of from your advocacy work that you could recommend? Absolutely. There are several recommendations that I would have for that because trust is one of the first things that goes out the window. You stop trusting people around you. So for restoring trust, whether it's in potential partners or friends or families who have unwittingly said something that hurt more than it was meant to, I recommend really digging deep down into yourself and asking yourself hard questions that can be upsetting. Like, what does this remind me of? What boundaries are they crossing? Who does this remind me of? And really try to like sit down, even if it sounds silly, write down a red flags, a green flags list. As a survivor speaker, I've done dozens of trainings talking about the repetition compulsion that human beings have after experiencing trauma. And that is that we can know something is harmful We can see that it is damaging or unhealthy and we will stay in that situation or we will continue to engage in that relationship, the environment, whatever it is for the simple fact that it's familiar territory. We know how to navigate it. And for people who have lived in abusive relationships, whether it's for months or years, and I say this with extreme amounts of pain, decades, because I've met those survivors They are survivors. They have learned skills and defense mechanisms to keep themselves alive and to maintain as much as they can their own sanity and their own safety. And that's nothing to be hard on themselves about. But when they are out of abusive relationships and they are relearning that, it's important to recognize the survivor skills that you picked up may no longer serve you, not in new environments. You have to embrace that uncertainty and being uncomfortable in these situations because you know how to survive in an unhealthy situation. You're familiar with that. You've picked up all of those skills now, but they're not helpful in healthy situations. So when it's appropriate, when you do trust people, talking to them about your experiences, you don't necessarily have to go into the nitty gritty details, but sharing and saying, hey, here's some trauma in my past. This is what I know can be upsetting. This is how I know I react or this makes me feel afraid. Sharing that with someone and being vulnerable and them reciprocating by not using it against you is a wonderful thing that you can kind of microdose or baby step your way through. Give out little chances because I know how quickly that trust can be damaged with people. And a lot of times for people who have lived through trauma or survivors, trust is a one-time thing. And once it's out the window, it's gone. Yeah, we're a little quick to pull the plug, right? (laughs) Absolutely. But even that can be harmful to ourselves because, and I will say, because it's what got me through mine, those relationships are important. And sometimes we get scared just a little bit too quickly because trauma responses are like that oversensitive car alarm. Okay. Like you look at this car wrong and it goes (laughs) off and you know, nothing touched the car. No one's looking at it. It's okay. But that's what trauma is. And before you cut and run, check in with yourself first. What made you feel unsafe? How can you change it? Was it on purpose? Because I know we all heard the same thing throughout our lives. The road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? Mm-hmm. People start out with the purest motivation or concern or something showing that they care about you. And it doesn't come out perfect because we are human beings. 
I think that's really great advice. You mentioned this when you were talking about your story, and it's something I really resonated with of how easy it is to lose faith and kind of trust in your own self, not just in the people around you to keep you safe or that they have your best interests at heart. But for me, because mine was in a romantic relationship, I lost my faith in trusting who I led into my life in that way. But it wasn't always perceived by me of that's because of something they did. It was like, but I chose this. And you talked about kind of that shame, regardless of the trauma. There's this shame that we naturally as humans kind of have right away. And I think that's really important to hear is that's a normal reaction to have, but it's not yours to carry forever. Yes. And I would reiterate that a thousand times because not only is it shame, but it's also guilt and it's anger. All of these things that come up for people, they are normal reactions to abnormal experiences. But when you're dealing with trauma, you're going to have so many things come up for you that maybe don't make sense, that make people look at you sideways. But with context, it becomes normal. So For people who are struggling with that and carrying around the sense of it's their fault or they overreacted or I've heard so many times say, I just choose the worst dating partners. Like it's like I'm attracted to unhealthy relationships. Do your best to lay down the blame and recognize the patterns in your life because it's possible that that familiarity is what's pulling you in because you know that. That's not necessarily your fault. That's just something new that you have to learn about yourself. And as soon as you can recognize those things and learn new things about yourself, you can drop what no longer serves you and you can walk towards new experiences. I can just say that you have found your life's calling. I know it was not planned or easy for you to get to this point, but not only are you super well-spoken, but you're super knowledgeable. Truly, this has been eye-opening for me. Well, and I can speak for myself as someone who's gone through this. It's always nice to connect with someone that has gone through this. And so I know that the people that you're dealing with and being an advocate for are going to be very touched by you. But I think listeners who are listening to this episode, as we have been reached out as we continue this series, a lot of people carry these pains with them or they're currently in this. And so my hope for you, Alice, is that you know how much we appreciate it because you being a voice and a different story that someone connect with, I know that someone is going to listen to this and get help because of what you said today. So I just really appreciate your time and your vulnerability and your willingness to do this because it's not easy to have these discussions. Thank you guys for having me here because it is something that helps me heal a little bit more each day the more I do talk about these things and the more I'm able to share with people. So I really respect what you guys do in sharing that information, finding a platform, Because really, you are rising people up. You are giving them an opportunity to share their voices. And that in and of itself is something that is so powerful. And it's not easy either. And if we have time for it, I do have a few more things I would like to share with those who are listening. One of the first things that I want to address that I try to in every situation is that when you're looking for how to heal how to recover, you find oodles and oodles of information, all of the social media blogs, Instagrams about what self-care looked like and how they're at the end of their journey. And, you know, they've really just sewed everything up all nice and neat and everything's fine now. And I want to challenge that because I think it's damaging. People don't share the hardships they go through until after the fact. And I believe that one of the most powerful ways that we can destigmatize these experiences and even Maybe reduce the amount of shame that survivors feel. It's just talking about how it's not easy. Healing is not linear and it's not going to happen on anyone's timeline. 
this is something that will impact their lives forever. And while that can be discouraging at first, I think it's important to remember because years later, I still deal with flashes of anger, overwhelming waves of sadness. There are times where I cry and it's not something to feel bad about or sad for. It's just acknowledging that that pain will come up. It will stay with you and if you trust it, it will guide you in a way that you need to. So listen not only to your body, but also your mind. Because as someone who works in the mental health field as well, I can tell you that trauma stays within your body. Maybe they've gone to therapy and they've talked about it and they're getting to the point where they're so done because they've shared the same story and they've cried the same tears. And, you know, how many times do I have to talk about it till I'm over it? Maybe it's not talking that you need. Maybe you need the physical expression called somatic experiences where your body has to relearn that it's safe because that car alarm is going off saying, hey, something touched me. Your mind may realize that the danger is past, but your body, like your nervous system, needs to learn you are safe again. So I encourage people to look out for those experiences, whether it's yoga, whether it is with a somatic experience trained therapist or EMDR. Look for the physical ways that you need to process that trauma as well, because talking about it is powerful. It helps give you more control over how you see your experiences, and it gives you a way to organize everything as well. But it's not the only way to heal. And if you are going through those symptoms or you're mad at yourself because you're not over it or you're tired of crying, do your best to go easy and realize that this is going to come up sometimes. There's nothing wrong with that. I think that's a really important point to make. Even just hearing your story, my body is having a pretty violent reaction to it. Obviously, I'm upset for you, but um, yeah, it's been 13 years and I still go fight or flight, shifting in my chair, my hands are shaking, my stomach is you know, doing that thing, even though I know I'm just sitting here with Annie and you're in my screen, <laughs> but it's one, it's just empathy of that I hate that you have this story. But I think it's important for people to hear someone say, it's been 13 years. I think mentally I'm great. And that's not something that we've touched on in this series is that how the body holds trauma. And it's not its not always the most comfortable thing, right? When I'm sitting here like shaking and going, how can I tell my body to calm down? So I think it's an important thing to know of when you have cried all the tears and you've done all the therapy, that there's maybe some other avenues to look into as far as the pathway, like you said, to recovery. I will say it's a powerful experience. Well-renowned psychologist like Dr. Besson Bondrick, who wrote The Body Keeps the Score, talks about how important it is to have an anchor processing through trauma and going through experiences like that. And I will encourage anyone not to blindly trust someone to be your anchor, but if you do have a trusted individual, especially if they're a mental health professional, lean into that uncomfort, lean into the uncertainty. Well, and it's important to have those corrective experiences. Yes, it is. And then you learn you can trust again. Oh, absolutely. And to touch on what you said there with having those corrective experiences, that's one of the leading beliefs of neurobiology is that a wound that happened in relationship will be healed in relationship. It's having that corrective experience, not only to feel what needs to be felt, but move past it and learn that that's not the only ending. There are ways that it could end that are safer and happier. As someone who didn't really have people around me that really understood 
this kind of thing. I think you're going to be a blessing to a lot of people. Is there anything else that you want to discuss before we let you get back to your cute little cat? <laughs> Thank you, because she is on my lap. Her name is Chaos. For this <laughs> uh, but something I did want to touch on is maintaining that digital safety that we see abused more often than we realize because social media is everywhere technology is everywhere and people will exploit that so i want to encourage people to increase their awareness of what their online presence looks like i would encourage people don't have social media if they are considering getting it which is probably five people on the planet right now maybe don't use your full name you can go by a nickname so that Say someone hears your name in a coffee shop, they can't find the media. Don't use identifying pictures on your social media. Lock down those settings from public to private because a lot of settings, especially on things like Facebook, can be available for acquaintances. So friends of a friend can see that and you don't know who mm -hmm. a friend of a friend is. I would encourage people to do a deep dive into their privacy settings, but also increasing their awareness on their cell phones, and how easily things like spyware and stalkerware can be downloaded. Most of the time, people need physical access to hold that phone in their hand and download it. But for anyone listening for me be experiencing digital abuse right now or is being stalked right now, pay attention to your battery. How quickly is it draining? Is that abnormal? Look in your apps for what's recently been downloaded or if there's anything that you don't recognize as having downloaded yourself. If you need to get a new device, don't buy it third party because that could have been uh, what they call jailbreaking. Buy it directly from a store. Do not restore apps, settings, download from the cloud, or log into old social media accounts or emails because that can re-download the software that's being used to, to abuse you. So increasing that awareness and some security protocols as well can increase your safety. So a slight plug that I have is someone that I use often as a resource is techsafety.org. They have an app safety center that can walk you through some of those experiences, whether it's with iPhone or Android and deep diving into those settings to increase your digital safety as well. Yeah, especially with, you know, iPhone has the pinpoint accuracy location or whatever the heck they're calling it now. And then my true crime brain goes, oh, it's going to help us find people. And then my victim side of me goes, that's going to help someone else find someone that doesn't need to be found. So I really appreciate you sharing that. I will put that in the show notes. So I would encourage people to arm themselves with as much knowledge as they can to protect themselves and their loved ones because an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of sure, is what they've said, which in this case, it can save a life. So check in on your location sharing details and everything to do with data security, especially if it's contact information or something to do with physical location. If you are a parent that is listening to this, I would very much encourage you to check out some of these sites that she's talking about and go through your kid's phone, go through the settings and walk through and make sure that those location settings are turned off. And I'm not a parent myself, but that's the only piece of parenting advice I will probably ever give on this podcast is to just make sure that you're sharing this information with your kids too, because they are going to be a little bit more impulsive and use it a little bit more mindlessly than an adult brain that knows the dangers of the world around them a little bit better. February is Teen Dating Violence Awareness Month, and it actually just gained national recognition within the last two weeks after decades of advocacy 
And I will say, perhaps what is chilling for any parent to listen to this is 80% of parents don't believe their teens when they say that they're in an abusive relationship. And I'm going to encourage every single parent or anyone who has a teenager in their life to look into these resources, listen attentively, be aware of the signs, and openly talk with teenagers and young adults about boundaries, what are green flags, what are red flags, and concerning behaviors. Teach them how to advocate for themselves and challenge behaviors because especially when you are going through the throes of puberty and fighting to belong and, you know, learning about what a relationship is and what love is, you can excuse behaviors that you don't recognize as dangerous. What a teenager may see as persistent can be legally defined as stalking behaviors. It just makes me so mad that we have to have these conversations, that we have to warn teenagers about this. It's just makes me sad sometimes the world around us. But I think, like you said, if we can do anything to prevent it or take preventative measures for the people that we love in our life, then these conversations are very worth it. So I appreciate your time. I appreciate, again, your vulnerability and willingness to share not only your story, but all of these resources with us and with our listeners. And I hope that you applaud yourself and find space to celebrate you because you are shining a light in a world that can be kind of dark and dreary sometimes and helping other people. And I know you're going to help our listeners by sharing all of this. So just thank you. Thank you for saying that. That was beautiful. I think you have a stronger voice than you give yourself credit for, but you guys have definitely (laughs) touched my heart. So thank you.